and to worship together as the people of God. Well, this evening I have been assigned by my brothers in the ministry to seek to answer the question, does prayer change things? And I think they're being mean to me because (laughs) this is one of those questions that's hard to answer. Uh, It seems like it may have an easy answer on the surface, but when you start to dig into it, you begin to understand that it's a very difficult question to answer properly. And so, as I seek to answer this question this evening, my goal ultimately is not just to be able to answer the question theologically or academically, but that you would be encouraged to be a people of prayer for the glory of God and for the good of your fellow man. And so if you would, please turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter number 6, and our passage this evening will be a familiar one. It will be verses 9 through 13, which we know as the Lord's Prayer. This is God's word. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us pray and ask God's blessing on our time this evening. Holy Father, we do come to you and we are amazed that we can call you our Father, that you are not ashamed to call us your sons and your daughters. Father, we thank you so much for the reality that we have a relationship with you that has been purchased and earned by your very Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we also realize that you are the God who is in heaven. You are the sovereign God. You are totally and absolutely in control of all things. And therefore, you are a God who can answer our prayers. And so we come at this time with that great desire that you would be pleased to bless us as we open your word as we consider this topic of prayer. Lord, we know your word is is full of, of commandments and encouragements for us to pray. Lord, we know that you love to hear the prayers of your people. And so I pray that you would that you would cause your people to be more consistent and more fervent and more believing in their prayers. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, now, in order to answer the question, does prayer change things, I think we have to begin by considering our need of prayer in the first place. Hebrews 10, verses 24 through 25 says the following, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, this passage in Hebrews is set in a larger context where the author's goal is that his readers would persevere in the faith, particularly as they face increasing trials and tribulations as the time of Christ's return draws ever closer. Beloved, like the Hebrew Christians, we too live in the last days. The scriptures are clear on this point. The great day of the Lord The great day of judgment against the wicked and the great day of vindication for the righteous is moving. It is getting closer every single second. Pastor Al Martin once said that the gearbox of time has no reverse and no neutral. It only has forward. The scripture tells us much about what living in these last days is like. Ephesians 5 verses 15 and 16 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Philippians 2 verses 14 and 15 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. 
2 Timothy 3.1 says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. 2 Peter 3 makes the point that in the last days scoffers will come and they will mock those who are looking for the great day of the Lord. I think the point here is clear. We as the people of God are looking for and hastening the day of Christ's return. And on the one hand, this is to be a great encouragement to us as we understand that this day is getting closer and closer and closer. And that there is nothing that will stop the consummation of God's redemptive purposes. And so as we consider that day that is moving closer and closer and closer to us, it is to be a great encouragement to us as believers. However, as the scriptures make it abundantly clear, the time between this day, which is today, and that day, which is Christ's return, are evil days. And they are days that will be marked by difficulty. These days are days in which we are to be engaged, the Bible says, in a war. Ephesians 6 makes it explicitly clear that we are in a great spiritual warfare. Now, what is the nature of this warfare? Who are the enemies in this war? Well, first, perhaps the enemy which is at the center of our warfare is our own self. Our own evil heart, which the scripture says is deceitful and desperately wicked. William Sprague, a Presbyterian minister in the 1800s, once gave some very helpful and important advice both for those who are younger in the faith, but also for those who are older and have walked with Christ for decades. He said, Impress upon the young convert from the very beginning that God has called him into his kingdom to struggle against the corruptions of his own heart. Now, you, those, those of you who are newer believers, you are beginning to find out about this struggle. And those of you who are older saints, you know that struggle all too well. The struggle against the corruptions of, of your own heart. Paul in Romans 7 describes for us the struggle of the believer. He says, There exists within the very heart of the believer a great warfare, the flesh waging war against the spirit and the spirit waging war against the flesh. This great battle in Paul's own heart calls him to cry out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In another place, Paul will call himself the chief among sinners. The enemy that you will have to do the most battle with is your own sin. John Owen captures the nature of this battle well in his well-known quote. He said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Dear ones, you are in that warfare against your sin. And I'm not telling you anything new. You know that you're in this warfare. But you need that reminder. We need that reminder very often. Remember the word of God to Cain when he warned him that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you. Therefore, you must rule over it. Paul will tell us in Romans of the life and death nature of this battle that we are engaged in. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so this war against our sin is a life and death war. If you lose that war, you will die. And so we are engaged in a great battle against our own sin. But not only do we battle against the corruptions of our own heart, against our own sin, we have enemies on all sides. In fact, we have enemies in high places. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, Satan himself is your enemy. The scriptures declare that he is a liar and the father of lies and that he is a murderer. He is described in the scripture as a prowling lion seeking whom he may devour. He hates God and he hates the people of God. Dear ones, he hates you. He is your enemy. And so do not be dismissive of the reality of this great enemy of God and his people. We have a very great enemy who is stronger than we are. Further, we also live in the midst of a wicked people and a wicked culture. Dear ones, there is opposition and temptation on every side in this life. 
In this life, there is the potential that people will persecute you, abuse you, take advantage of you, and do all kinds of evil against you. And many of you, many of you bear the scars to this day from people who have done you harm. This is the reality of this world that we live in. And thank God for his common grace that restrains evil. Because people are wicked. People are wicked. And it is, it is a testament to the, to the restraining common grace of God that you are not hurt more often by people. Further, there are people who in their walking after the course of this, of this world will lead you astray. 1 Corinthians 15.33 states, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Yes, there are people who would abuse you in horrific ways, but there's far, far more people that will lead you down that broad road that leads to destruction, and they'll do it with a smile. This can be through vain philosophies. It can be through sensuality. It can be done through entertainment. It can be done through all sorts of ways that seem benign on the surface. We truly live in these last days in the midst of a wicked and twisted generation. And so, dear ones, follow the counsel of Paul. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, for the days are evil. And on top of all of this, our own sin, the schemes of the devil, and the wickedness of our culture, we also have to deal in this life with the very reality that we live in a fallen world. And because we live in a fallen world that has been cursed on account of our sin, we must struggle with the reality of what's been called natural evil. Now, it is called natural evil because it is distinguished from moral evil. Natural evil includes things like cancer, tornadoes, car accidents, heart attacks, all of which are amoral tragedies that negatively impact human life. All of us have struggled and have been hurt in one way or another by these kinds of realities that accompany living in a world that has been cursed. And you will continue to struggle with these realities so long as we live on this side of glory. Now, what are we to make of all of this? I know some of this has been dark so far, but these are the very realities of the war that we're in, and we have to face up to that. How are we to respond to living in a world full of evil? Surely, in light of this, we can better appreciate the petition of the Lord's Prayer, which states, deliver us from evil. Dear ones, we are in need of deliverance from our own sin, from the schemes of Satan, from the wickedness of this world, and even from natural evils that cause us harm. We need to daily be praying for deliverance and protection from evil, and yes, even victory over evil. Now, it is at this point that there is a serious conflict between Christianity and the world. When mankind is met with tragedies in this life, both tragedies that result from moral evil or tragedies that result from natural evil, it is a stark reminder that we are not ultimately in control. It is a reminder that ultimately we are dependent creatures. It is a reminder that our very lives and the lives of our loved ones are dependent on the giver and the sustainer of life, which is, of course, God himself. It is this profound sense of dependence that ought to drive men to prayer. When something terrible happens, whether it's the loss of a loved one, a dreaded diagnosis, the loss of possessions, what is the most common response that we hear from people? Take social media, for example. You will see that people repeatedly will comment that they are praying for whoever is suffering. And that is good, and that is right. That is something that we ought to do. However, there are many people who do not love the Lord and who are annoyed and even angered by people saying that they are praying for those who are suffering. One U.S. senator wrote that sending prayers is nothing more than meaningless platitudes 
that offered no real help to the suffering. Another journalist wrote, The public knows faults and prayers will not prevent the next tragedy. Now, what is at the root of this kind of disdain for those who offer prayers in a time of crisis? Well, ultimately, what is at the root of it is the idea that God really isn't involved in the everyday lives of humans. Now, this conclusion can stem from a whole host of wrong thoughts about God, which is one of the reasons why A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The common conclusion of those who disdain the offering of prayers to God, particularly in a time of crisis, is that prayers simply don't change anything. In their view, prayer is antithetical to action. That is, they think that prayer is the opposite of action. Prayer, in their minds, is nothing more than wishful thinking. If it has any external value, it is simply the same value that can be acquired from knowing other people are thinking about you. It is the equivalent, at best in their thinking, of sending someone a sympathy card. Now, those who hate the idea of offering prayers to God do so precisely because their theological conclusion concerning God is that ultimately, He is not sovereign and is thus powerless to help in time of need. They adopt the mantra of, if anything is going to happen, it's up to us to make it happen. We're in this on our own. We, not God in their view, are the captains of our destiny. And so the conclusion of the unbeliever is that prayer does not change things because the God who is prayed to is ultimately not sovereign over the events that take place in this world. And of course, when we hear such reasoning, we rightly conclude that this reasoning is wicked and foolish. We conclude that this kind of thinking offers no hope and no comfort for people in the midst of a world distressed from evil from every side. This kind of reasoning leads to what one theologian has called the worst of all sins, and that is the sin of prayerlessness. The prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 12, 23 states, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Prayerlessness is an awful sin. And why is prayerlessness such an awful sin? Because what it does is it reveals in the heart of the person that they believe that they are not dependent on the Lord. That they are ultimately self-reliant in their own thinking. Dear ones, this is idolatry. This is worship of self. Far be it from us that we should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray. For we believe that we have a great high priest who sits upon a throne. That is, he is sovereign and he is full of grace. And he is able to give mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. This leads me to the next point. How do believers respond when faced with the realities of life lived in a fallen world? Well, believers have a diametrically opposed view to the unbeliever regarding the nature and being of God. The the believer concludes on the basis of God's own revelation that God is sovereign. And And for the believer, this reality that God is sovereign becomes a rock of stability and a pillow of comfort in the midst of a world full of evil. The believer says with the psalmist in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear that the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The believer stands upon God's proclamation in Isaiah 46, where God declares, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And the believer loves to rejoice in the truth of Romans 8.28, and we know 
that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Jerry Bridges captures these truths well in the following quote. He says, That which should distinguish the suffering of believers from unbelievers is the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all-powerful and all-loving God. The believer copes with the realities of this fallen world and the evil thereof by running to the biblical truth that God is sovereign. Now, when we say that God is sovereign, what are we saying? What does that mean? What we are saying is that God is ultimately, completely, and utterly in control of all that comes to pass. God's sovereignty points us to the reality that God truly is the independent being. No one can dictate anything to God. He is the self-existent one, and he has all authority, and thus he has the right to decree whatsoever he wishes. And further, he has absolute power to bring to pass whatsoever he decrees. Ephesians 1.11 states that all things come to pass according to the will of God. This means that God is sovereignly decreed and is actively working out all that should come to pass. The 1689 Confession states it like this in chapter 3, paragraph 1. Matter of fact, if you would, please take a copy of the Trinity Hymnal. And if you would, turn with me to page 672. And keep it handy because we will refer back to it a couple of times moving forward. So on page 672, notice chapter 3 of God's decree in paragraph number 1. It says, God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. So what has God decreed? All things. All things that come to pass, God has decreed. Again, as we have stated, this is a fountain of unspeakable comfort to the believer. To know that whatever happens in this life, that our God is in control. That is a fountain of unspeakable comfort for those who are believers. Brothers and sisters, we must stand on that truth. However, if we are not careful, we can greatly misunderstand and misapply this precious truth concerning the sovereignty of God. This is a truth that must be handled, as our confession will say, with special prudence and care. Brothers and sisters, theology, doctrine, if it is wielded in a clumsy way, if it is taught in such a way that proper tensions are not held, it can cause great confusion and harm to believers. And consequently, it can cause great harm to the church. This is why Paul reminds Timothy of the necessity to work hard to rightly handle the word of truth. You see, many Christians, many well-meaning and sincere Christians, have looked at the truth of God's absolute sovereignty and have misunderstood the nature of that doctrine in such a way that it, is, that it has ultimately led them to have a very unbiblical view and unbiblical theology of prayer, including many who view themselves as reformed in their theology. They make the error of partial or incomplete reasoning. They reason in the following way. They say, God has sovereignly decreed all that shall come to pass. The scripture says he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. They will state, our own confession says that God decreed all things freely, that is, apart from the input of man. God doesn't come and ask anyone, well, what do you think I should do? And secondly, he has decreed all things unchangeably. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means exactly what it says. It means that God has decreed or planned everything that will happen before the world began and in time, everything that happens 
happens exactly according to the plan. R.C. Sproul has famously stated that, that there are no maverick molecules. Everything happens exactly according to God's plan, and nothing will change that. And to that we say, Amen. And then, because this is true, they will reason this must mean that our prayers do not change God's decreed will. Is that true? Do our prayers change God's decreed will? Stated differently, do our prayers change the mind of God? Well, the only answer to that question is, of course not. What could be further from the imagination that my prayer or your prayer could change the mind of the Almighty? Just think about that for a moment. And and to think about that question is to answer that question. Because what would have to happen for God to change his mind? What kind of view, what kind of view of God do we have to have to assume that God has worked out his plan? He has his plan A, as it were, and he is about to implement this plan that is based on what? On his perfect knowledge, on his absolute wisdom, and his total righteousness. And therefore, as R.C. Sproul states once again, God is utterly incapable of having an evil plan, and he's utterly incapable of having a foolish plan. And so God has this plan A, and he's about to implement this plan, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden something happens that God did not anticipate. You begin to pray. And now you are acting as God's guidance counselor. And you say, well, I don't like the plan. Could you change it a little? Or you inform God of some, some information that he did not previously know. Now, we chuckle at that because it is ridiculous. What kind of God would that be? Is that the God of the Bible? Is that the God who knows what we need before we even ask? Of course not. And so some rightly conclude that prayer does not change God's decreed will, that prayer does not change the mind of the sovereign God. But if they stop there, if we stop there, we make a serious error. And dear ones, this is important for you to grasp. If we stop there, then what will inevitably happen to our theology of prayer is this. We will reduce prayer to the power of positive thinking. We will reduce prayer to simply being a means by which we reorient ourselves to the sovereignty of God and then submit to his will. And you say, well, that's not a bad thing. No, it's not a bad thing. But if you reduce prayer to that, you've misunderstood prayer. In other words, we will reduce prayer into a means by which its primary purpose is to make me, the individual, feel better. We will turn prayer into being simply a means of self-medication or self-soothing. This is the same theology of prayer that the secularist has. You can read a plethora of psychological journal articles that extol the positive psychological benefits of prayer. Secular secular psychologists will say that prayer instills in a person a sense of optimism, hope, gratitude, and connection. Further, prayer, they say, can reduce feelings of isolation, anxiety, and fear. Dear ones, we must reject this sort of new age, spiritualist, almost mystical concept of prayer. Do you remember how we began our sermon? We began by reminding us that we as believers are engaged in a war. That we must do battle against our own sin, against the schemes of the evil one, that we must walk wisely in this present evil age, that we must be prepared to handle the hardships and trials that come with living in a fallen world. But dear ones, is that the totality of the Christian life? Let me ask it a different way. Is the Christian life only about you as an individual persevering in the faith to the end? If our answer is yes to that question, then we could say, well, perhaps the purpose of prayer is not really to change anything, but rather to just help me cope with living in a fallen world so that I don't fall away. But is that the purpose of the Christian life? 
on Friday at our family night, we read the following excerpt from the Valley of Vision. And the devotional that we read from was titled Man's Great End, which is just another way of saying man's great purpose. And listen closely and examine your own heart in this matter. The devotional writer writes, There is one thing that deserves my greatest care, that calls forth my ardent desires, that is, that I may answer the great end for which I am made. And what is that great end? To glorify God who has given me being and to do all the good I can for my fellow men. Truly life is not worth having if it be not improved for this noble purpose. What is being communicated in that Puritan devotional? Well, quite simply, it is the two great commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Your great aim as a Christian is that in love you would seek to glorify your Father in heaven. That is, that you would give of yourself to see the name of God magnified in this age and the age to come. And secondly, as a Christian, your great aim is to be like Jesus Christ. And what does Acts 10.38 say about Christ? It says that Jesus Christ went about doing good unto others. You are to give your life to serving others and doing good to your fellow man. Dear ones, we are not commanded by God to be self-centered. We are not commanded by God to live like monks and hide ourselves away from the world. We are not commanded by God to hunker down and wait it out until we get to heaven. No, we have been commanded by God to advance a kingdom, His kingdom. We have been given a commission from the risen Lord. Now, let us turn our attention back to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. This is the way that Christ expects us to pray. It states, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven... And so there we have the concept that prayer is about communion with our Father. And it's about a recognition that He is sovereign. Okay? But the rest of the prayer is what? The rest of the prayer is petitions. And what is a petition? A petition is you want something done. You want something to change, right? It goes on to say, these are the petitions. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Dear ones, what I want you to see from this this is the very nature of prayer. Particularly the very nature of this prayer. This is a wartime prayer. This prayer is focused on what? It's focused on God's mission. Yes, as I said, there is the communion aspect, but the, pri- but the prayer primarily is a prayer of petitions. It is a prayer about getting things done. Is it, a, is it a prayer about seeing things changed? That's what the prayer is about. Dear ones, when you begin to understand this, you begin to understand the purpose of prayer and its relationship to God's decreed will. John Piper writes the following. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. He goes on to say, prayer is not a domestic intercom to increase the comforts of saints. What we must understand if we're going to have a proper theology of prayer is that prayer has a very particular relationship to the sovereign decree and purpose of God. And what is the sovereign decree and purpose of God? Well, here in the Lord's Prayer, we see that it is that God's name will be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, and that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the sovereign decree and purpose of God is this, that God would save his people from their sins through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit and this to the praise of His glorious grace, resulting in a people who worship Him for all eternity. 
Dear ones, that is what the whole Bible is about. The whole message of the scripture is about that one great purpose. In Genesis 3.15, we see a glimpse of God's sovereign decree. That through the woman, one would come who would crush the head of the evil one. And then in Genesis chapter 12, we see this sovereign decree, this sovereign purpose given to us in more clarity. As God makes a covenant promise with Abram out of pure grace, that, and in that covenant he promises that through Abram's offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the sovereign decree and purpose of God. And from there we see that the rest of redemptive history is about that sovereignly decreed purpose of God being fulfilled. And dear ones, we see the fulfillment of that decree promised to us in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. If you would turn there so you can lay your eyes on it. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. There John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, what is happening there in that scene in Revelation? Is the name of God being hallowed? Yes. At that point in redemptive history, do we see the kingdom of God come in its complete and consummated state? Yes. At that point in redemptive history, do we see the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven? Completely and perfectly. Absolutely we do. For heaven and earth will be one. And so we see what the sovereign decree of God is, what the purpose of God is. What then is the relationship of prayer to that purpose? If you would look back with me again in the Trinity hymnal on page 672. And notice if you would once again, chapter 3 of God's decree, paragraph number 1. It says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably all things, whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. And so what this paragraph teaches us is this. Yes, God has decreed all things that come to pass. And so does prayer change the decreed will of God? No. But the paragraph goes on to state that the contingency of second causes is not taken away. Now what is a second cause? cause well God is the first cause and so second causes are any cause other than God that produces an effect for example I have this book on this side of the pulpit right if I move this book from this side of the pulpit to this side of the pulpit did I change God's decree no but did I change anything what did I change I changed the location of the book, right? And so the location of this book, being going from here to here, was dependent or contingent on what? Me picking up the book and moving it, right? You see that? So I'm a second cause, causing this book to go from one side of the pulpit to the other. It didn't change God's decree. God decreed from all eternity, from, from before the world began, He decreed that that book would move back and forth on this pulpit. But the book actually moving was contingent on the second cause. Prayer, likewise, is a second cause. And prayer, it's not just any second cause. 
prayer has an extremely important and prominent role in God accomplishing His decree. In fact, I would say that prayer is one of the three primary, secondary causes that God uses to accomplish His decree. They are, I believe, as follows. First, prayer. Secondly, the proclamation of the gospel. And thirdly, sacrificial love. These three great secondary causes are used by God to accomplish His sovereignly decreed redemptive purposes. Would anyone say, well, God is sovereign, and therefore we conclude that the preaching of the gospel doesn't change anything. Well, if I, if I preach, it just changes me. But it doesn't change anything externally outside of me. No, we would not conclude that. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And how are people to hear without someone to preach? Or, would anyone conclude, well, God has sovereignly decreed all things, freely and unchangeably, therefore... If I love my wife, it doesn't change anything externally from me, outside of me. It just changes me. We would not conclude that, would we? We would understand that 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 is absurd. Well, brothers and sisters, it is the same with prayer. Prayer is one of the great weapons of our warfare. It is one of the great tools that God uses to accomplish His redemptive purposes. James says that the fervent prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Sadly, however, I think I can with confidence say that we greatly underestimate the power of prayer. Just look at the average attendance at prayer meetings in most churches and you will see what I mean. I believe one of the great contributing factors to our prayerlessness as the people of God is that perhaps without realizing it, we have imbibed the secular view that prayer is antithetical to action. We have a tendency to get more excited about going and doing something with our hands than we do about bending our knees in prayer. Sproul commenting on this issue stated the following, most Christians salute the sovereignty of God but believe in the sovereignty of man. This must not be so, brothers. We cannot forget that we are dependent upon God for everything, but especially we are dependent upon God for spiritual life. I think the format of the Lord's Prayer makes this point powerfully for us. What is the major thrust of that prayer? That God's name would be hallowed. That God's kingdom would come. That His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on the Lord's Prayer made the following observation. He says, The purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. Warren Wisby Warren Wearsby draws the same conclusion in his thoughts. He stated, the immediate purpose of prayer is the accomplishing of God's will on earth. Now, what is a necessary requirement for the hallowing of God's name and for the coming of the kingdom and for the will of God to be done on earth? For any of that to take place, people have to be regenerated. That is, God has to grant spiritual life to spiritually dead sinners. And I don't know about you. Well, yes I do. Um, I can't grant spiritual, spiritual life to dead sinners and neither can you. There is no amount of effort with, with the arm of the flesh that can bring life to one who is dead in their sins. doesn't matter how hard you try. No amount of effort can do that. Only a work of God And God alone can do this. And so as the gospel goes out, and for that matter, how does the gospel go out as a result of prayer? Jesus says that we are to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the harvest. But as the gospel goes forth, what do we pray? God, take out their heart of stone 
and give them a new heart of flesh. Ezekiel 11. Lord, circumcise their hearts so that they love you. Deuteronomy 30. Father, put your spirit within them and cause them to walk in your statutes. Ezekiel 36. Lord, grant them repentance and a knowledge of the truth that they may escape from the snare of the devil. 2 Timothy 2. Father, open their hearts so that they believe the gospel. Acts 16. And so how important is prayer to the advancement of the kingdom? It is absolutely essential. Our great goal as Christians in this warfare is to advance the kingdom of Christ. But we do so as those who stand like Ezekiel before a valley of dry bones. I can't cause a man in my own strength to be born again so that he will hallow the name of God and be granted entrance into the kingdom as one who does the will of the Father. But I know someone who can cause that to happen. I can preach, I can share the gospel, I can love, but these alone are insufficient. I must pray. And in reality, that is the most powerful thing I can do to fulfill my great end, which is to advance the kingdom of Christ and to do as much good as I, can, as I possibly can unto my fellow man. You see, if we're not careful, we will begin to think in this way. Well, I've done all that I can do. Let me now turn to prayer. No, dear ones, we must never think that way. Prayer is not the last resort, but instead prayer is the vanguard. It is the tip of the spear in our warfare. Martin Luther once famously stated, he said, I have so much to do today, but I must spend the first three hours in prayer or I'll never get all my stuff done. Is that the way we think? Or do we think the opposite? I'm so busy, even I'm so busy serving the Lord that I have no time for prayer. Dear ones, do you believe that God can do more in a moment than you can in a lifetime of toil? And right here, I want to give a word of encouragement to the older saints in the room. I know that there are times that you get discouraged because you can't do as much with your hands as you used to be able to do. But I want to encourage you that God can do more through your prayer life than you could ever do with your own bodily strength. In fact, I believe that there has probably been more accomplished for the advance of Christ's kingdom through the prayers of old saints than there has been accomplished in the youthful zeal of young converts who have not yet learned how much they really depend upon God. I believe old saints probably bear more fruit for the advancement of God's kingdom in their old years through their prayer life than they ever did in all their work. Do we believe that? Does prayer change things? Absolutely it does. Dear ones, every single one of you in this room who have been regenerated by the power of the Spirit, do you realize that that took place as an answer to prayer? The reason you're saved is because somebody prayed for you to be saved. Do we love our lost family members, our friends, our community enough to pray that God would save them? That's the greatest thing we can do. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the, 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 the necessity of preaching the gospel, but I'm trying to maximize and make the, the point clear that we cannot advance his kingdom without prayer. In the late 18th century, there was a major movement among Calvinistic Baptists to pray for the advancement of Christ's kingdom on this earth. It was spurred on initially by Jonathan Edwards in America, where he encouraged churches to have an hour-long prayer meeting every Monday to pray specifically for God's kingdom to come. This commitment, and think about that, the context there. When, when did Jonathan Edwards live? He lived in the midst of the Great Awakening. And yet he said, we've got to pray more for the advance of the kingdom. And look at us. We're, we're living in a, in a completely different age. And do we pray like that? Do we have that same sense of urgency? This commitment of prayer was picked up by Andrew Fuller and William Carey and others in England. 
A contemporary of these men by the name of Thomas Bundle wrote the following, which captures their views on the place of prayer in the advancement of the cause of Christ. He writes, It is chiefly an answer to prayer that God has carried on his cause in this world. He could work without such means, but he does not, neither will he. He loves that his people should feel interested in his cause and labor to promote it, though he himself worketh all in all. It was from this major commitment to prayer that the modern missions movement was launched. They prayed for the advance of, of God's kingdom, and God sent out missionaries. And the next century was the greatest missionary century in the history of the world. And so it has been throughout the history of the church, from the book of Acts and throughout all the centuries, God has advanced his kingdom in answer to the prayers of his people. And so as we consider ourselves this evening, three small churches, do we believe that prayer changes things? I trust that you do. And so let us commit ourselves to prayer. And let us pray as Christ taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we commit ourselves to praying for the salvation of the lost, beginning in our own families, our own circles of influence, in our own community, in our own state, in our own nation, and around the world, and this to the glory of Christ. And I believe only once the kingdom of Christ is fully consummated in the new heavens and the new earth will we discover just how much our prayers actually change things. Let's go before the throne of grace together. Holy Father, we do believe that prayer changes things. But Lord, help our unbelief. Forgive us of our prayerlessness. Help us to believe that you truly are the sovereign God of all the universe. And not only are you sovereign, but you are a God who loves us with a love inexpressible. Lord, your desire, your decreed purpose is that, is that your kingdom would come, that your name would be hallowed, and that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we know that that will be accomplished. But Lord, we have a work to play in that. We have, we have a part to play in this. Lord, make us faithful. Make us faithful to intercessory prayer. Make us faithful to proclaim the gospel. And make us faithful to sacrificially love our fellow man. And I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would, please stand. We'll sing hymn number 92 out of the hymns of grace. Not the Trinity hymnal, but the hymns of grace. The larger black hymnal. <clears throat> Hymn number 92, God of grace and God of glory. <clears throat> 